And everybody said amen. 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 Thank you. Well, today is May the 1st. And I I have with me today a save the date. May the 1st, 2016. Six years ago today was Celebration Sunday for First Baptist Arlington, where we launched our Blessing the Generations campaign, this capital campaign that was a truly pivotal moment in the life of our church. I would say it was one of those um, times in our church's life uh, where it was a monumental um, change, and it has been an incredible gift and blessing to First Baptist Arlington. And it was six years ago today that we began this incredible journey of totally transforming our campus to what we have today. And so how many of you were here on Celebration Sunday six years ago? A lot of you were. Awesome. Well, we have a couple folks I want to invite to the platform. Um, I'd ask Bill Weed and Jeff Williams to come join me if they would. Um, Bill and his wife, Julie, chaired the Blessing the Generations campaign committee that was in charge of helping to um, uh, raise the funds and the investment that our church is going to make in this venture. And uh, so Bill's here with us. And then Jeff Williams. Jeff is chair of the master planning committee that put all the plans together for um, Blessing the Generations. I wonder if we have folks in here today, if you were on the Master Planning Committee or Blessing Generations Campaign Team Committee, would you stand wherever you are so that we can say thank you for your work? <clears throat> we're so grateful. Um, we, uh, in these last six years, um, we have invested $24.8 million in our campus renovations and building a new children's building, as you know. But you have given $15,474,651 to Blessing the Generations. So thank you, church family, for your investment here. And uh, we borrowed $9.4 million, and we've already paid that down to uh, $7.8 million. And so many of you have continued to give to bless the generations, and you've given to the debt retirement. I just want to tell you, thank you. But I also wanted to acknowledge these two guys and the leadership they gave us. So, Bill, you led the capital stewardship campaign. So I want you to come and share a word of thanks and whatever you feel led to share with the church as you think about these last six years. So thank you for your leadership, sacrifice, generosity, blessing uh, that you've been to our church during this time. Well, thank you, Pastor. And uh, thanks to all of you. Uh, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your heart uh, to to invest in this place. Um, you know, over 151 years, I think this this church has had many pivotal moments, um, many turning points, um, and this one uh, was certainly one for our generation, for those of us here at this time during this season uh, here at this place in Arlington. And when I think about the last six years, I, th- I think about so many things, but but it certainly has been a, a period of blessing and a time in which we're uh, seeing the blessings passed on to future generations. I think about three words when I think about blessing the generations at this place. I think about investment, I think about stewardship, and I think about provision. Truly, God calls us to invest ourselves into his work. Our time, our talents, our resources, our financial resources, certainly he wants all of us 
And we all have different resources, but he wants, he wants us to be fully invested. And that's what this campaign has represented to me as an opportunity for us all together to invest into God's kingdom here on earth. And, and by investing in this place, we're investing in things that will last forever. We're investing in people, we're, and, and truly the investments are in people to bring people closer to God and show God's love to them. Stewardship, he calls, also calls us to take care of what he's given us. He's given us all the resources. We're just giving a part back to him. And he, he calls on us to, to steward them well. And for those who steward their resources well, I believe he's faithful to continue to provide. And so as a church, we're called to steward what he's given us. He's given us this location here in Arlington. He's given us these facilities. And by continuing to invest in them, in upgrading them, and keeping them as, as good tools for ministry, we're being good stewards for that. And then certainly God has provided. Oh my goodness, he has provided. He's provided through your generosity, through your gifts. And for that, we thank you. Thank you for, thank you for being faithful in your generosity. And we're not done yet. This church is going to continue to on, go on. There's always going to be needs around here. So let's just continue to be all in, all in and invested, being good stewards. And we'll count on God to continue providing. So thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Bless you, brother. And then, um, you know, um, Jeff chaired the Master Planning Committee. You know, over the last couple of months, we've had church members that uh, they've just invest, invested themselves way beyond our church. Um, I went to a uh, recognition um, ceremony at Lake Arlington and uh, the new um, house that uh, is dedicated there at Lake Arlington, it's a beautiful place, hosting all kind of events, was uh, named for our own Catherine Wildman. Catherine's sitting right here and uh, we were honored to be there that day, that day, Catherine. And then later I went to a new courtroom dedicated to uh, Robert Shepard. Robert's a member of our church. A lot of times he's up here on this platform leading and uh, another city council member. And then on Tuesday, we're going to dedicate the plaza in front of City Hall and name it in honor of Jeff Williams. And so Jeff, congratulations on that. Thank you for serving our community like you've done. But um, while Jeff's been doing all that, <laughs> he's been leading this master planning at our church. And so Jeff, I want you to share a word about that journey and then if you would lead us in prayer and thank God for how we've gotten where we are, man. Thank you, Pastor. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely the thing I want to share with you is how God was at work. The children's building and the preschool building, had we had all kinds of needs. And we knew we needed to provide for growth too. And the preliminary price tag on that was way beyond what our budget was. And it was scary. All of us there on the Master Planning Committee and the staff, we were praying hard. How can we do this uh, there? And God sent us the right contractors. We were able to find the right materials uh, there. We did a whole lot of different work. God opened doors. And that budget came down about 35%. And uh, y'all at, uh, I'm sorry, the cost came down to the budget. We met the budget. And we're all just going, we couldn't have done this. God was at work uh, there through making that happen. And y'all see the result of that preschool and children's building. What a need that we had. But to God be the glory. Amen. I mean, my goodness, uh, there, it's amazing. And now every part of our church has been touched there with our facilities. Are we done? No, but we are a long ways. When you think about where we were at in 2016 to where we are now, and we are so poised to be able to use these tools to be able to reach others. 
And thank goodness we're a, a church that God does use, and he does, uh, and I just want to thank each one of you because we work together here, don't we? Mm -hmm. And we turn to God and not away from him uh, there each and every way. And we know that everyone is in different circumstances right now uh, there after this pandemic, but think about if we were starting now on this campaign where we would be. Instead, no, we're, we're done, and here we are ready to move out and do God's work and to hopefully reach even more. With that, let's pray. Amen. Dear Father, we are so grateful to you. We are so thankful, thankful for how you have continued to show us and guide us, Lord, and how you continue to use our church and dear Father, we just uh, know that it is a big responsibility here that we need to step up and to use these facilities now for you. We just thank you for all those who have come before us that you have used in this church. We're very much aware of our history and how there have been so many building blocks that you have worked through people here to, to make a difference. And here we are now in 2022, Lord, and in very challenging times, times where our world needs you. Dear Father, please use us. Please guide us. And dear Father, I just uh, pray that we will put aside all of the distractions of the world and that, that we'll reach out and, and, and recognize the opportunities that you're given us to share our faith and to share the gospel, Lord. Dear Father, we love you and we thank you for using us to let your light shine. In Christ's holy name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate y'all. Thank you, Bill. God bless you guys. Appreciate your leadership. And uh, thank you for letting us, helping us celebrate today, six years later. Wow, it's amazing what all's happened. Well, this morning, if you have your copy of the New Testament, I would invite you to look with me at 2 Corinthians. We'll get to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 here in just a minute. And uh, you know that this year, we have been exploring these various words in our biblical and theological vocabulary that begin with the prefix re. And so for the season of the spring, we are now studying what it means to be reconciled. You remember, we introduced this last Sunday morning, the word reconcile in the New Testament. The Greek word underneath the family of English words associated with reconciliation is taken from the accounting industry in the ancient world where coins were exchanged and accounts were reconciled. So that word that is now used in the New Testament to primarily refer to the reconciliation between God and us comes out of the accounting world where the exchange was made and now the account is reconciled. That word's also used in the New Testament not just to apply to the relationship that we have with God, but it's also used to apply to the relationship we have with one another. As we get reconciled to our lives, our circumstances, to what God's doing in us, we also are to be reconciled to one another. Uh, we have provided this booklet for you for this season. They're available in various places in our welcome centers if you didn't get one yet, and it just says reconcile. And it has some theological reflection that Katie Reed Hodges has prepared for us. Kurt Grice has written 
uh, preparation material for all of our sermons during this entire series. Let me read to you one of the quotes from Katie in this particular booklet. Katie has written, in broad cultural terms, the average American doesn't seem to spend much time or effort striving for reconciliation in their own life. If you investigate more deeply, however, you'll find reconciliation to be a thoroughly biblical and thoroughly necessary endeavor which deserves deep consideration in every Christian's life. And I couldn't agree with Katie more. Reconciliation, it is necessary and it is biblical and it can be a very challenging enterprise. And I want to encourage us to give consideration to it in our own lives so with that said, I want us to look at this text this morning. 2 Corinthians 3, um, Paul is engaged in somewhat of a defense, an, an argument, if you will. And I mean that in the best sense of the word, a conversation, a discussion about the ministry that God has given him there in Corinth. And he is trying to help these people there understand why he has been led to do the things he's done in their midst and you come to chapter 3, verse 7, and this is basically a commentary from Paul on Exodus 32, 33, and 34. Paul is reflecting back on what happened to Israel when Moses was on Mount Sinai. He received the tablets from God. The children of Israel built a golden calf. Moses threw those tablets down in exasperation. He then would later return to Mount Sinai and receive this message from God again. And then he would be reflecting the glory of God, radiating God, God's glory because he had been in God's presence. And he was bringing to the Jews what you and I today call the Old Covenant. And so Paul is reflecting upon that and he's comparing what happened then to what ha has happened with the advent of Christ and this new ministry under the New Covenant. And so let's just pick up the story and then we'll come back and unpack all this. So look at 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Now, Paul is using a technique out of Jewish rhetoric and Greek rhetoric, less to more. He's comparing what was less to what is more. Verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses, who put a, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, this morning, let, let me begin as we unpack this text by also reading a quote from this booklet that Kurt Grice prepared in preparation for this sermon. And it basically summarizes 
the intent of what I want us to learn today, and that is this. We, Kurt says, we were created to live in an intimate relationship with Almighty God, enjoying His presence and reflecting His glory. And so that's really the essence of what I want us to talk about. But here's what we need to do first. We need to make sure we embrace Paul's theological argument first, and then I want to look at a practical application that comes from the summary of what Paul is teaching. So let's look at the theological conversation first. And Paul illustrates in this text, uh, he demonstrates a conviction of uh, what I would call inaugurated eschatology. And we've talked about that phrase before. It's something that I believe very firmly in. Well, what is inaugurated eschatology? Well, basically, it's this idea that the age to come has already intersected this present age. And we are now the new covenantal people of God. You know, biblically, you basically, in general categories, have two ages when it comes to time. This present age and the age to come. And inaugurated eschatology teaches this, that when Jesus came, into this present age, Jesus initiated and inaugurated the age to come. Now, the age to come is not fully consummated, obviously, because there's still sin in our world, there's still brokenness in our world, there's still separation in our world, there's still blame and guilt and all the things that we have to deal with as sinful human beings. So there's still obviously the evidence and the reality of this present age. But the age to come has already broken in. And broken through. Jesus did that. Jesus established the kingdom of God on this earth. And Jesus ushers in the age to come. And he gives us glimpses of how it's going to be. And so you'll see Jesus performing miracles that are victories over evidences of this present age. Jesus will encounter someone who's blind or who's deaf or who's lame. And Jesus will miraculously reverse that curse, if you will, which is the general statement about sinfulness and how it's affected all of humanity. Jesus gives us evidence of the age to come. He now has given us the assignment of living as people of God who now live in the new covenant era. And we are to give evidence of the age to come. The, what you and I would call today the old covenant that was inaugurated with Moses. That covenant was for this present age. Jesus came and initiated the new covenant. And the new covenant is evidence of the age to come. And so here's what Paul is saying. Paul is giving homage to the present age. He's giving homage to the old covenant. He says, look, the old covenant was given by God. And when God gave the covenant, his glory was with it. It was a demonstration of his glory. His glory descended on Mount Sinai. In fact, his glory was so powerful and so present and so real that Moses stood in the presence of it and it changed Moses' physical appearance. Moses, Moses emerged from Mount Sinai. He came back down to see the people and he was radiating the glory of God so much so that the, the people couldn't even look at Moses. He had to wear a veil because it was just so powerful. It was so overwhelming. You remember, it all stemmed from Moses' request. Moses said to God, show me your glory. You remember? Show me your glory. And God said, you can't take it. You, you just can't take it. Obviously, you don't understand my glory. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll hide you in this cleft of the rock. I'll just pass by. You might live. 
I mean, you might survive it. I'm just going to pass by. And so the glory of God, the glory of God passed by Moses, and Moses was changed. Now, artists have tried to depict Moses radiating the glory of God. How do you do that? Well, it's very difficult to do. But here's what's interesting. In, In the high renaissance, there were some artists who decided to depict it based upon the original Hebrew in Exodus 34. So when you go back to Exodus 34, here's what the the scripture says. It says that Moses had these, we might say these rays of God's glory emanating from him. But the Hebrew word actually is the word for horn. Interesting. So some of you have been with us to Rome. Some of you have been to Rome. And when you go to to Rome, uh, Michelangelo is my all-time favorite sculptor. He wasn't a bad painter. But his chief skill was sculpting. His masterpiece, of course, is David. Uh, My favorite sculpture is the Pieta, which is at St. Peter's. But his most majestic statue, in my opinion, is Moses. And the statue of Moses is found at the tomb of Pope Julius at St. Peter in Chains. Let let me show you a photo. I think we can do that. Here's a photo of Moses there in the middle of this. um, And he is, um, he's holding on to these these, um, the, the stone that's been given to the, him by God and he's about to stand up. But I want you to notice this close-up of Moses. You see what's emanating from his head? Two horns. And there are those who have looked at that and said, well, obviously, this is some kind of satanic representation. But people can just be ignorant, Right? You know, and I mean, by ignorant, I mean the best sense of that word. They just don't know. This has nothing to do with the devil. As a matter of fact, in the, in the Reformation era, and the Renaissance era, Satan was not depicted with horns. That came much later. This is Michelangelo's attempt to be true to what the Hebrew text said. These horns were radiating from Moses. In other words, these rays of the glory of God were emanating from Moses' physical appearance is the point they're trying to make in art. And Paul gives a shout out to that. Paul says, look, Moses, he received the old covenant and the glory of God was there and he radiated the glory of God and it was powerful. However, Paul says, that covenant has been surpassed by Jesus and the new covenant. And Paul's point is, if glory came with the old covenant, can you imagine the glory with the new one? He says, the glory that came with the old covenant, and the old covenant was transitory. It was temporary. It was just for this present age. It has passed away. Can you imagine now this new covenant, this new covenant which is eternal in nature, and Paul says, the glory that comes with it surpasses the glory of the old covenant. It's a powerful, theologically rich argument from Paul. Paul is talking about how God is reconciling the world to himself now through this new covenant. And he says, I'm a minister of that new covenant. Paul is not claiming to be greater than Moses. Paul is claiming to represent a covenant that is greater than the one Moses represented. That's his point. And he says, this ministry I have with you in Corinth, it is a ministry of this new covenant. Now, This argument that Paul is making is right in the midst of him trying to mend a relationship with the church at Corinth. And I would just tell you, 
In order to understand 2 Corinthians, you need to do a little homework. I would just challenge you to do it because Paul has a very complicated relationship with Corinth. He, um, he goes there in Acts 18. He establishes the church. He lives almost two years there. He writes them a letter. Um, he then writes them another letter that we call 1 Corinthians. He went back to see them, made a painful visit. He wrote them a letter. Then he wrote them another letter we call 2 Corinthians. Then he would go back later. He'll write Romans from Corinth. When you look at your Bibles or your New Testament, there is more material written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth than any other church. This was a strategic church to him for many, many reasons. So I would commend it to you. Last Wednesday at my noon Bible study, I did a, an analysis of Paul's relationship with the city of Corinth. And if you want to know more about it, I'd encourage you. You can find that on our Facebook page or our YouTube channel or our Vimeo channel. And you can go back and look at it if you want some, to do some homework on the relationship we ha- that Paul had with Corinth. But Paul is engaged in a theologically rich conversation. Now, here's what I want to do this morning. First of all, we want to stop and acknowledge that. But now I would like to make a life application for you based on the insights that Paul had and what he used in this argument with with the church at Corinth, okay? So let's do just a quick summary of an application in your life. So in order to do that, let me just walk you through a few truths and then we'll look at this text real quickly. Here's Here's the first thing. Let's talk about God's glory. What is God's glory? We talk about it a lot. We sing about the glory of God. What is God's glory? Well, I would say it very simply. It is a manifestation of his essence. The glory of God is when the essence of God is revealed. So we have an example of that, Exodus 32, 33, 34. God passes by Moses, and then there's this declaration. Here is God's glory. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's abounding in love. And faithfulness. He forgives. He continues to love. And he holds people accountable in a righteous and gracious way. Those are manifestations of the very essence of God. So God's glory is the representation, if you will, manifestation of these very attributes. Now, what does that have to do with me and you? Well, when you read the scripture, here's what you'll discover about us. We are God's people. And we are uniquely designed to reflect God's glory. Isaiah 43 verse 7 says this. My people, people I've called by my name, whom I have designed for my glory. Psalm 8 says we've been crowned with the glory of God. But Isaiah 43 7 says we've been created by God for his glory. So what does that mean? What that means is this. That every day in my life, as one of God's children, God's glory is supposed to be on display in me. I'm supposed to be reflecting it. Compassionate, abounding in love, gracious, abounding in faithfulness, forgiving, holding people accountable righteously and graciously. So every single day of my life as one of God's children, God's glory is supposed to be reflected in my life. So let me just stop and ask you, how are you doing when you get up on Monday morning in your life, in your everyday life? I'm not talking about in your Bible study, coming to church. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in your everyday life, how much of God's glory is on display in you? 
Well, here's where the challenge is. Here's the problem we all have. We all have the same problem. And you know what that problem is? Sin. And let me tell you what sin does to us. Sin prohibits us from fulfilling our destiny as God's people. Romans 3, verse 23. You remember what it says? For everyone has sinned and fallen short of what? Of the glory of God. So everybody sinned, and the very thing we're designed to do, reflect the glory of God, we all fall short of it. That means that in your everyday life, relating to your friends, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your teacher, your colleagues, your classmates, um, your family, your neighbors, you fall short of the glory of God. You don't always abound in love. You just don't. You don't always abound in faithfulness. You don't always forgive. You don't always hold people accountable righteously and justly. You don't always act graciously. You're not always compassionate. You know why? You're a sinner and you fall short of the glory of God. Guess what happens to me too? We all do it. We can be vengeful. We can be prideful. We can be cold-hearted. We can be non-compassionate. We can be unforgiving. We can be broken in our relationships. And we can do it well. And the reason we can is because we're sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. It's a huge barrier. It's, it's a blockade to the work of God in my life and in yours. And our world is filled with it. Our neighborhoods, filled with it. Our schools, filled with it. Our workplaces, filled with brokenness. The reason is, people fall short of God's glory. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is this, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus perfectly bore the image of God and reflected the glory of God in his life on this earth. You remember what John said in John 1 verse 14? He said, and the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only. In other words, John, he knew about Exodus 32, 33, 34. Of course he did, he was a Jew. John was a theologian. John knew about the glory of God. And here's what he said. He said, the glory of God, we saw it in Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, glory of God. Every conversation, glory of God. Every relationship, glory of God. We saw the glory of God in Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus, he perfectly bore God's image and reflected God's glory in this world. So listen to Hebrews 1. The writer says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, in the age to come, that's where we are now, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also he made the universe. Listen to what Hebrews 1.3 says. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, Jesus perfectly bore the image of God and reflected the glory of God in his everyday life. That's why Jesus is our example. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our Redeemer. But he's also our example to show us how to do this. So when you read and listen to the teachings of Jesus, he's trying to show you and teach you how to reflect the glory of God in your everyday life. So 
Let me just apply it real quick. Are y'all still with me? All right, so 2 Corinthians 3. God's glory can be restored in us. And we can live. We can. We can live into our destiny as the people of God. It's possible. So look at 2 Corinthians 3 again. Verse 17, Paul says, Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces. You see, the glory of God changed Moses' physical appearance under the old covenant. But the glory of God in the new covenant changes me and you on the inside. And that changes our behavior, our habits, our attitudes, our promptings. Changes everything about us. He says, we, without veiled faces, we contemplate the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Now, let me just tell you how that works. When you become a Christian, here's what happens to you. You're a sinner, and you are separated from God, and you are bound for hell. You are destined for God's judgment, and there is nothing you can do about it. You can't undo it. You can't overcome it. You can't fix it. You can't outgood it. You're a sinner. However, when you become a Christian, what happens is God takes the sacrifice of Jesus and the blood that Jesus shed on the cross and he applies it to you, to your soul and to your life. And because your debt has been paid by him, he forgives you for being a sinner. And you are cleansed from your sin. And you are given a precious gift right then. You are born again and you're given a gift from God that will last forever. It's eternal life. And then God gives you his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit comes and resides in you. And so now as a Christian, you have the Spirit of God residing in you. And the Holy Spirit is there to equip you, to empower you, and to change you. Because here's what God wants to happen in you. He wants to conform you to the image of his Son so that his glory can be reflected in you like his glory was reflected in his Son. In order for you to reflect the glory of God and in order for you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, you've got to be transformed. And the transforming work of the Spirit of God is what's at play right now in your everyday life. It happens on Monday morning when you get up. The Spirit of God is working in you because the Spirit of God wants to conform you to the image of Jesus so that on Monday morning you will be transformed and you will look and you will act like Jesus and you'll reflect the glory of God in your world. So here's how it works. Every time, are y'all still with me? Every single time you win a spiritual victory in your life, every time you overcome some sin, small as it may be in your mind, every time you have victory over some temptation, every time you come to a crossroads and you make a really good spiritual decision where you're obedient to God, every time you beat down the temptation to go your own way, follow your own path, and do your own thing, and submit yourself to the will of God, every time that happens, here's what's going on in your life. A little bit of the glory of God is reclaimed in your life and reflected in your life. And it happens every day, little by little. A little bit of glory is restored when you had a victory in that moment. A little bit of 
glory is restored when you chose to forgive and not retaliate in that moment. A little bit of glory of God is restored in your life when you chose to show grace. A little bit of glory is on display in your life when you choose to be faithful instead of being unfaithful. A little bit of glory is on display in your life. God reclaims some ground in your life whenever you choose to, to not act in vengeance, but you choose to be gracious and godly and mature and wise and listen to the voice of God. Here's what Paul says. Here's what we're doing. We're going from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory to one day to glory. See, that's what's happening. That's the Christian life. So you and I are without excuse. We can't say, well, I'm just a sinner. We already know that. Well, I just give in. We already know that. But guess what? The Spirit of God is in you and the same power of God that raised Christ from the dead is alive in me and you. And so God is giving us the ability to be restored and God's glory to be on display. And the only way it can happen, there is only one path. There is no other path. It's exactly what we say at this church. Glorifying God by following the Jesus way. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the lie. I'm the only way. He's the only way to heaven. He's the only way to have that kind of life on this earth. The only way for the glory of God to be restored in Dennis Wiles' life is when Dennis Wiles chooses instead of following the Dennis Wiles way every single day to follow the Jesus way. And the hope is that before this thing is over, the Dennis Wiles way gets really close to the Jesus way. That's the hope. That's the glory of God on display. So you know what I'm praying for you? That. I'm praying that over you. When you get up on Monday morning, on Saturday afternoon, on Tuesday night, that God's glory is being reclaimed in you. And it's on display. Here's what it does, y'all. Jesus said, when other people see your works, they'll glorify your God, your Father in heaven. They'll be drawn to it. You see, Here's what you don't know. I don't think you know this. But everybody in your life has what we in Alabama would call a hankering. <laughs> There's something buried way down inside of them. And they want something. And they don't even know why. But they want it. And when they see it fully, authentically, genuinely on display, they're drawn to it. They can't help themselves. That's the Holy Spirit at work in them through you. So may you and I have the glory of God restored in us. May it be so. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you, Lord. You've been so good to us. And we just want to thank you for your presence in our lives and the transforming work of your spirit. And we confess to you our brokenness, our sinfulness, our unwillingness sometimes to be conformed and transformed. We know that it's a partnership and it, it requires something out of us. And so, Lord, we pray that we'll find your hand at work in us and through us and that you will reclaim lost ground in our everyday lives and that we'll see your glory restored in and through us. We pray that in Jesus' name.